0: Open the box.
1: Yeah, I'm here. Okay. okay. How about you guys? What Let's talk say? about you guys? Yeah.
0: <laughs> you I get it. I get it. <laughs> hello
2: hey how's it going
0: good how are you
2: good i'm doing well where's our other friends Who's i
0: gone? am gonna add scott right now okay usually we're all in the same room so we're calling scott i'm zach and jeff is on the road to visit his dad so he may or may not have signal so we we might not right. get
2: right yeah that's fair how's your day going so far
0: oh pretty good yeah, yeah. Pretty good. Just picked up the girls from school. I have an 8 and a 10-year-old, wow. so.
2: Oh, my goodness. No yeah. way.
0: Yeah, which has gone fast. Oh,
2: no kidding. Yeah. So that's wow, why that's this is
0: kind of a, your book is very interesting to me <laughs> yeah. and my wife.
2: I was going to say, yeah, I bet. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that they're at a, a good age for you to be reading all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Think about all sorts of stuff, so. So I'm happy to be joining you. Yeah. What are they like?
0: Oh, man, they're so different. The 10-year-old is mm-hmm. uh, a dreamer. Every time we're driving, she's got her head out the open window, just kind of experiencing the wind and the sounds and, and turning up the music and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. she's the one that we try to get to do her homework, but she's always thinking of something else. So, mm-hmm. And then the 8-year-old is just a fireball and sure. she just she'll come home and do her homework, get it done so she can get to mess around and playing and running around and stuff like that. So totally different. And we um, same parents. It's just it's <laughs> amazing how it, I, we're not. Yeah, obviously, they're different people. So we we probably react differently, but generally the same parenting style. So
2: mm.
0: they're still mm-hmm. so different. Amazing. What do you think about that? Nature, nurture? It's mm. obviously both, but I suppose it can vary depending on the people, but do you have like yeah. a percentage guesstimate you think about like that, w- w- how much one affects the other?
2: Yeah. Like the, the most current studies show us that they're, it's almost more like, um, instead of two columns where it's equally distributed 50% 50% or like a distribution like that, that it's this interactive feedback loop where nature does something and nurture responds, which influences nature, which responds through nurture back and forth. And so you can imagine something like, um, let's just say like a, a sensitive temperament and sensitive temperament would be the, the nature part of it. And then because there's a sensitivity, um, the people in the environment will respond to that in a certain way that could increase or decrease that sensitivity or the expression of it. And then based on how that goes, nurture impacts that as well. And around and around and around it goes. And it's more, the more I learn about things like interpersonal neurobiology and like what happens relationally that impacts like things like epigenetics, the more it just seems like we'll, it's too complex. We'll never get to the bottom of it. But. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what but do you both, really? Yeah. What do you know mm-hmm. about epigenetics? That's, I, I haven't looked into it a whole lot, but it's, it's fascinating mm. to me how it's almost like there's, so there's more possibilities than, for development than we ever could have imagined turning genes yeah. on and off. Um, yeah. and I'm sure we're just scratching the surface on that. Like you said, maybe we'll never get to the bottom yeah. of it, but what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's it's helpful because it can destigmatize a lot of stuff. People blame themselves or blame other people. And I think we can just say, like, we're going to do the best we can to understand what mental health is and what development is. But really, it's just so complex that we do what we can. But what we know, one of the things that's that field of epigenetics has helped us in mental health is around the activation of, of certain um, genes based on traumatic stressors. And so we just need to learn how to support people better. We need to learn how to decrease stress. Um, painful events can bring anything up, even for the most well-resourced and resilient people. So even something like schizophrenia, we say there's a what's called a two-factor theory or stress diathesis model, where you might have the latent gene for schizophrenia or like the the predisposition. But you you may not develop it unless you're in a significant enough um, of a stressful environment for that gene to kind of be turned on um, and then there's some people who will never get it no matter how much stress they have so stress is one of the biggest predictors of or in terms of relating mental health and epigenetic stress is a really big key player in in what hurts and helps people mm-hmm.
0: so do you think it's mm-hmm. this this probably plays a part with I mean I guess across the board, like, uh, gender dysphoria, I, I wonder about transgender issues, like how that that's affecting either one way or the other. Like there's these, is there traumatic events that can trigger certain things or is that, is that something you're just born with?
2: Can you start over? Just, it was lapsing a little bit and I want uh, to make sure you heard the question. Yeah.
0: Um, it, it was related to, Hey Scott, are you here by the way? I see you. Can you hear us?
1: Hmm. I am here.
0: All right, cool. you sound good.
1: Yeah, I cannot. Good. I cannot figure out how to turn the video off, so I apologize that I still pop up.
0: I don't see you. Huh. You don't have yeah, to apologize to... for popping up. <laughs> <laughs> Come
1: on. I'm just I'm just trying to get the conversation started here. Yeah.
2: With the <laughs> <audience>. <laughs> right, right. The shame.
0: Yeah, we All were we you... were talking about that oh. uh, before we got you on, and Scott. I think Scott might have a question or two, but I was, I was asking about uh, gender dysphoria. That's what it's called. Correct. Mm. Um, And it,
2: the name changes all the time.
0: Okay. Yeah. And it, I guess it's just, it's something I'm mulling over. Just it's fascinating how people are the way, like how they get to where they're at. And even with you and writing this book, we're going to get there to like wh- why you're doing what you're doing and why you're writing the book and, Um, but just the tough, complex issues, like from a Christian, for us, from a Christian perspective, Mm -hmm. a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of conservative side would, they want to say that, well, it's just a choice, whether it's transgender or whether, um, LGBT, whatever the case, but the epigenetic end of things doesn't Mm. let, it feels like it doesn't let anybody really rest in. A safe answer like that it's just a choice you can choose to do the quote good or bad thing and, and also there are environmental factors that impact the way you behave or or what you believe or mm-hmm. what how you think so i don't know mm-hmm. if you have any professional thoughts regarding that
2: yeah it's interesting to look at like if you call it gender dysphoria from a mental health perspective because mental health and what we decide is functional or dysfunctional pathological or healthy Is is mediated by what's kind of in vogue culturally at the time. So if you think of things like hysteria, which were you know the which is the clinical name for you know hundred and however many years ago for when women were really distressed, they thought it was because women had a wandering uterus. That's what hysteria means. Mm. But. When you look back at the case notes, it's, it seems that it was actually women who had experienced sexual trauma who were just kind of acting out the sex, their sexual trauma because there was no other way to act it out or express the narratives as what have happened. And so it's really hard to separate like what is culturally mediated and what is neurobiological with mental health because so much of our expression of our experience of being human is mediated by our cultural context. So there are mental illnesses that you would see in Asia, Uh, but don't exist here. Hmm. Is that because they're not biologically mediated? Is it because they have different genes? Or is it because they experience some sort of similar level of distress, but they do different things with it on the outside? Hmm. So there's like things like shrieking disorders and things like sensory disorders that don't show up anywhere in North America because of how we're socialized. So it's Mm -hmm. really hard to say, hello,
0: you want to say hi? get in the mic say hi. hi say hi to Hillary
2: My name's Hillary nice to meet you Hi
0: What's your name Hi
2: what's your name I'm Gwen Gwen oh Gwen so lovely to meet you Did you do your homework already today Yeah I bet What are you up to tonight now Um Nothing I guess Nothing soccer Oh practice. sure you Oh yeah soccer practice That sounds good Do you like soccer Oh that's so cool What's your are you reading any books right now? No. Hmm. That's not true.
0: No, I don't know. Okay, not yet. currently. <laughs> At this moment.
2: Ah. Do you have any favorite um books that you read or any favorite characters from books? I don't know.
0: What's your favorite you don't know? character? I don't know. No. Yeah, it's tough. Have you ever
2: heard Gwen, have you ever heard of Harriet Tubman?
0: Harriet Tubman? No.
2: When I was your age, when I was about eight, she was my favorite person to read about. I had all the books from all over the city about Harriet Tubman. And so maybe you could ask your parents to tell you about who Harriet Tubman is later.
0: Okay. We can do that.
2: She's a firecracker just like you. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Bye. Bye, Gwen. Thanks for saying hi.
0: Love you. (laughs) She's the one that likes to make the appearances. But you got more oh, okay. out of her than any other uh, guest so far. Usually she'll just oh, really? refuse to talk and she'll just say hi and then leave.
2: Oh, really? Oh, I feel so privileged. Yeah. Wow. Lucky me.
0: Yeah. All right. So did you grow up in British Columbia?
2: I did, yeah. I'm from actually just about 20-minute drive from where I live now. And... um yeah, just actually kind of where near the big Vancouver airport is. There's a town called Richmond and that's where I grew up and now live in Vancouver, quite near downtown. And um go to UBC, which is in one of the most like probably one of the most beautiful campuses around. It's right on the coast and really beautiful. And have my office in downtown Vancouver. So yeah, it's a pretty nice setup right now.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome place. I've been a mm-hmm. couple of times. My wife and I have actually, you really? Yeah. Um, hmm. My wife and I haven't gone there yet, but we went. I went when I was younger several times, and hmm. then we went on our honeymoon to the Banff Springs Hotel in Alberta, no, which was pre- really, <laughs> which was pretty rad. It was pretty,
2: that is amazing. Yeah, pretty
0: storybooky. So we love Canada. Were you there
2: in the? Oh yeah, it's it's so beautiful. Especially Banff is like our one of our treasures. Were you there in the winter or the summer?
0: It was March, so mm. we actually mm-hmm. it, it was pretty great. We had cold and snowfall and then the next day was like 70 degrees and there was a lot of snow and we, we ended up seeing an avalanche when we were snowshoeing wow. it was pretty magical
2: oh wow nice yeah. your honeymoon kind of the special treatment from the land yeah there.
0: canada really hooked us up
2: No so kidding!
0: It, wow it's tempting if we ever left the states uh it'd be tough to avoid canada hmm form yeah mm-hmm what is your, do you have like a routine for getting ready for your patients? Cause you, you do therapy. Is that full time or part time? Mm-hmm. You're doing school right now too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And those actually, they overlap quite a bit cause my, I'm doing school right now. I'm doing a PhD in counseling psychology. So I have my, my master's in counseling psychology and that has given me the ability to get licensed and work in private practice. Um, but I'm doing my, my, my doctorate now which is cool. Um, I, yeah, my routine for getting ready for my patients. I think, um, the more integrated I am, the less work I have to do to get ready. If I've had a really hard day or I'm feeling really disrupted or anxious about something, it takes more time, but usually what it looks like is, um, getting to my office a little bit ahead of time, kind of waking up knowing that I'm going into holding space for people. So I work really hard right from the beginning of the day to kind of set stuff on the shelf. And then I usually take a few minutes of quiet time, either to ground myself or pray or um, review notes, do something to kind of settle everything down. Because if my stuff is getting activated, it's really hard for me to stay present with patients and see what's going on for them. So I'm trying to clear my stuff out of the way while still being able to be present and attuned. And so sometimes that takes 30 seconds and other times that it takes an hour, depending on if I've, you know, like had a fight with my husband on the way out the door yeah. or if I just, you know, did a scratch and win and won the lottery. <laughs> right. <never> happened. But <laughs> yeah, I think the circumstances make it easier to connect or, or harder to connect with myself.
0: Right. What about music? Mm-hmm. Do you, is, there, is there a music... Do you have like music to, I don't want to say pump you up. That's probably the wrong, wrong term for therapy, but to get you ready, (laughs) do you have a band or a, a soundtrack or something?
2: Oh, no, I don't. Sometimes between when I'm commuting, um, between teaching. Um, so I teach in a graduate program as well. I do a teach in a master's of counseling psych program in their clinical skills Class. So sometimes after that, I'm feeling all pumped up because it feels like really energizing to teach and do stuff that's really, um, really powerful and meaningful, and to see my students grow. So I listen to some some stuff that that feels me like I can kind of get my jitters out or whatever. Um, but yeah, before therapy, I'm usually actually very, very calm and quiet and settled and grounded, just to just to be able to really listen listen to what people are saying and what they're not saying.
0: That makes sense. Mm -hmm. You don't want, you probably don't want music with other people's voices going going right right before therapy. Yeah.
2: I try and do the, do the opposite actually, which is sit in still in stillness, sit in silence when I'm walking. I often choose to walk to work because it helps me feel like I'm grounded in my body and feel my feet on the ground and listen to listen to the wind
1: just to
2: really quiet everything down. Because when people are in therapy, there's something we call micro attunement, which is being extremely hyper aware of all of the little things, including, you know, if someone's about to cry, seeing before they cry, the slight reddening around their eyes, noticing if there's a, a subtle change in their posture, all of those things. So you have to be incredibly on, especially due to the kind of therapy that I do. So I try and get everything quiet inside of me so that I can be really present with people.
0: It makes sense it it would be if you're not careful I'm guessing it would be really easy to miss a cue that you could mm-hmm. really you could really drill in on to help them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, cuz often people there's two lines of narrative happening in the therapy session. There's one, which is what people are doing on the surface. That's what we call the content. It's what people are saying. You know, they're saying I had a fight with so-and-so or I'm anxious about this. And if you're listening, you'll hear the big things. But then the other piece is what we call the process, which is what's happening between myself and my, my patient or my client. And and sometimes there are very, very little things that aren't said that actually are communicating a lot about what's going on for the person, like. If they're telling me something, but they feel a different way, um, if there's a little bit of sensitivity or rawness. And often, especially after doing therapy for several years, I've learned to be able to see, like I said, with micro tiny it's almost like you get a tiny little flicker that there's an emotion, there's something going, and then you just see this little variation and it tells you there's some deeper affect there. Affect is another re- word we use for emotion, that there is deeper affect that tells me that maybe there's some work there that needs to be done.
0: That's interesting. Is there like a super common, I guess everybody's different. So it's it's almost a ridiculous question, but is there a common thing or phrase people will say about their day or about how things are going where like you instantly know what it's about? Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that it starts even from the moment when I greet someone and say, nice to see you today. How are you? And if what they're saying doesn't really match what's going on in their body, but you know, if they say good or, you know, I'm okay. Um, My favorite is when people come into therapy and they don't really want to talk about themselves, which is why they're there. And I say, how are you doing? They say, I'm fine. How are you? Let's talk about you. And I'm like, Oh, you don't (laughs) want to talk about you today. I know what's going on here. Nice So that's a classic. Uh huh. Like, Oh, you're going to pay me all this money to hear how I'm doing. I don't think that's what we do here. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm sure eye contact.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So eye contact can be, for people who've been through developmental trauma, can be extremely difficult. So when I know we're touching some early, early developmental wounds, then if people stop looking at me, uh, they look away, or they don't even look at me at all, or their head is down, you know, all those sorts of things tell you there's a lot going on here, even if they said, oh, it's no problem. hmm no problem but they're looking away and and not, not touching base at all
0: yeah scott yeah, you still it's pretty get amazing.
2: It?
0: you got anything for us
1: yeah i'm here okay about you guys what what you talk about you guys,
0: <laughs> what, you about you guys. <laughs>
2: you <laughs> i get it i get it
0: <laughs> a diversion look over there
2: that's great look over there yeah look away scott
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was the impetus to writing your book Mm. And how far along was that after you had decided to go into therapy?
2: Mm -hmm. I decided as soon as I started doing my master's research that I was going to write a book about it and I didn't know when it was going to be. I didn't know, um, what format it would take, who would read it, who would publish it. But I, I really believe that in, in the field of psychotherapy, particularly as it's related to, um, innovative research about what it means to be human and well-being and flourishing and growth and thriving, that it's important and it's a political act to make research information accessible to people. Because often what happens is people do their research and then it sits in that ivory tower. All of the research journals that people actually don't, they're hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get access to a year. And so most people can't afford to read academic journals, or you can see an abstract if you look on Google Scholar, but to really read research articles, to see them, they're usually inaccessible language and usually inaccessible financially. So what I decided was, as soon as I'm done this study, I wanna look at some really important things. I wanna make sure that I give that away. And I have a mentor who's a clinical psychologist who's trained in community psychology, community, community psychology, and she always says, we have a mandate to give psychology away, if we know something about what it means to thrive and be well and how to understand ourselves and, and deepen and heal, then we have a duty to people to give that information back to them. So I had promised myself that that would be an important part of what I did. So I, I published my research and I published most of my research in academic journals. But when I think things could make a, a big difference in the lives of people and it could change something for them. It could help them heal. It could protect them in some way that I want to make sure that that is accessible. So when I was done my academic research for my master's, which was the foundation of this book, uh, I was speaking at a conference and I met a woman who actually ended up writing in the forward for my book. And she said, you've like, you've got a, a message to share and you should do that and kind of mentored me and walked me through the process of finding a publisher and and so that was actually the catalyst for it being this book in this form.
0: Getting into getting into the book, I know you share your story in your eating disorder that you had and mm-hmm. how you walked through that. Will you take us into that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Understanding a lot of it's in the book, but I don't want you to spoil everything, but mm-hmm. I'd love to hear some of that.
2: Yeah. So you cut out just really briefly. Can you say the question again? I wanted no. to make sure I really heard it. Yeah. It's okay. know, it's it was just, a great question. I know.
0: It was just related to your struggles with an eating disorder. Yeah. How, yeah. what were the triggers for that? I don't even know if triggers the right word or if there's uh-huh. like a, if it can happen slowly and then all of a sudden it's there right. or how did that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex thing to understand eating disorders because we, we have two words for understanding, um, the development of psychopathology. And one is the, the word epiphenality And the other one is the one is the other one is multifinality and epiphenality means you can have lots of different struggles in life or experiences that end by the same presentation. So It's really normal for people who've had sexual assault to have eating disorders, uh, for people who had attachment wounds, so like the loss of a caregiver or a neglectful caregiver, um, you know, anxiety, depression, suicidality, self-esteem, all sorts of things can end up in eating disorders. But the other side, the other way is true, which is that the same thing can end up in lots of different issues. So a shame issue could end up in depression or self-harm or addiction or eating disorders. And so we know that a few things are related to eating disorder development, and we know things are more likely to show up as eating disorders, but there actually isn't a definitive thing that we can say, if this thing happens, you will struggle this way, or these things cause eating disorders, but those things don't. But what we know is that in western sociocultural contexts eating disorders are more common than in cultures which aren't um, aren't touched by globalization. So there's something about the the capitalist structure, there's something about patriarchy and the story of femininity that it grooms people to to have their suffering show up in a particular way. But one of the most popular opinions about why eating disorders develop is around um, emotion dysregulation, so the inability to feel and to feel well, and feelings show up on the body. Feelings are not just this abstract concept in our head. they actually have physiological correlates. So things like um, shame coming with a with a tight throat or anger coming with hot, Um, hot, rushing Mm -hmm. intensity through the body. And so if feelings are unsafe and if feelings are scary, then we learn to cut the body off. We learn to do things to the body to make it go away or to manage the amount of distress that we experience. So just kind of like addiction, um, when things are too painful to feel, people do things to get away from the things that they don't want to feel. And not consciously necessarily, but we've got this Latent pain that's just kind of hanging out and some situation presents itself, and all of a sudden that pain doesn't feel as bad. And it's really easy to behaviorally get sucked into a cycle where that goes around and around. So really common for people who've had experiences of sexual trauma um to have eating disorders because they've had this very visceral experience of the body being a safe or sorry, an unsafe thing. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing all sorts of things to kind of get away from the sensations in the body to, to cut them off, to manage them. That wasn't my experience. Um, I haven't experienced sexual trauma, especially not growing up. And, and so for a long time in my, my therapeutic process, I kept asking myself, why do I have this eating disorder? What's going, where did this come from? Cause I didn't have the same, um, glaring red flags. Like I didn't grow up in an abusive home. And there is a, there is a, a less obvious story um, than the trauma one, but it's around there's a book actually that's called Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters, around the idea of perfection and trying to feel like um managing imperfection is something that can't be done. And so it moves into trying to control the body and trying to be perfect in some way. But it's most important to note that eating disorders aren't actually about food, and most of the time the weight or what's happening in the body is just a, a diversion from what's really going on, which is usually an, an immense amount of inner in experience of pain and no way to to manage through it. So when I think about um, my experience of disordered eating and where that comes from, I, I think about how I've always been a really sensitive kid, um, really finely attuned to the things that were being said and not said, and I, it happens right now that I have a job, which um, is based on my relational sensitivity. I have a full career out of being right. sensitive to what people are doing and yeah. feeling and my feelings about them. But my sensitivity and my big, really big emotions and creativity and kind of wildness, I think, was was a little much for my family. And given the context that they had grown up in and what was going on for them, it was really triggering for them when I had really big emotions and really wanted to express myself in really kind of, um, loud ways, loud, not just audibly, but loud kind of visible. And I was often really hurt and wounded by things that were benign and it it was too much for them. And so I learned to cut, cut that off and to feel like even just the way that I felt about things made me bad. And so I carried a lot of shame and a lot of distress and was really depressed for a very, very long time. And I think for a time being, having an eating disorder actually made me feel good. Hmm. It felt like um, a relief in a way. And and then at one point, it wasn't a relief anymore. It was causing more problems. And that's when I started to get treatment.
0: Was it eating too much or was it Anorexia? What, were you too thin, or I, I don't want to say yeah. too thin, but mm-hmm. how did yeah? It shape
2: so I met I met diagnostic criteria for a a whole bunch of eating disorder diagnoses, and it's actually very normal for people to move between different disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really normal for people to struggle first with bulimia and then to move to anorexia or anorexia is unsustainable. So then they move to kind of bulimia and these, these move back and forth regularly. What are the differences
0: between those two?
2: Yeah. So anorexia nervosa is when there's kind of a distorted perspective of the body and uh, a refusal to eat in spite of lacking nourishment, in spite of being underweight. Bulimia would be um, eating, probably binge eating was what we would call eating more than people would eat in regular serving and then inducing self-vomiting or using laxatives or exercising to burn off calories. So there's this kind of like, um, really intense, uh, impulsive ingestion of food and then like the removal of that from the body. And it's very normal for those to fluctuate because often what happens is people are so deprived of nourishment that they'll do anything they can to get their hands on food and then they feel guilty as soon as they've eaten because they're trying to lose weight. And so then they start vomiting and then they feel like they need to punish themselves for vomiting so they will refuse food and won't eat. Yeah, it's a really it's a really vicious cycle. So I met diagnostic criteria for both anorexia and bulimia with a primary diagnosis of one or the other at different times. And generally, the, the hypothesis is that once you've started treatment, it takes about seven years to feel like you're yourself again. And it's the most, it's the most, most lethal of all psychiatric illnesses. It has the highest um, mortality rate. Wow. So it's a pretty yeah. pretty scary thing and pretty pretty incredible then that I came back and have a fun- fully functioning brain because it's very normal for people to get so malnourished that their body never works again and and that they die not from anorexia but from complications of it later.
0: Wow. So what was mm. the catalyst for your healing or the recovery process? Mm. Was there was there a moment where something clicked?
2: Yeah, I would say that Recovery, kind of like um, most transformations, was a process that was underway long before I had that clicking moment. Um, My mom was often the one to, you know, get me all packed up and take me to a treatment program. Um, she was kind of the bad cop in a way um, because of seeing me suffering. And so I was in and out of treatment programs um, and seeing lots of different therapists and really wasn't ready to get better. So oftentimes, and I talk about this in the book, I I lied to a lot of people and would just get more sick um, because I wasn't ready to get better. And then um, I saw a therapist who really heard me and really saw me and we didn't really talk about disordered eating a lot. We didn't talk about weight. We didn't talk about food. Um, she really saw me and it was through our relationship that I felt like I had the courage to engage with my life again, because at that point I was pretty, pretty non-functional. And so I use this metaphor in the book of, of her putting her hands around a flickering flame that I didn't know was there. And she, she protected it. In mm. such a way that that flame could grow until I could learn to put my hands around that own my the flame myself and mm. say to myself like, I know how to take care of that that thing in me that spark in me that wants to stay alive. So, there was I would say a few moments in relationship where I had the courage to start looking at myself, but I I don't ever remember a single moment where I said, um, you know this is the turning point. I think there was, probably. Between um, eight to 12 years of me saying, like, I hate this, but I don't know another way. And then it just became easier to choose mm-hmm. another way. Because I want to I want to dispel the myth that, like, I think we like to have these, these salvation moments, these Paul Road to Damascus moments where all of a sudden things become clear and that we see them. But for a lot of people, their journey with depression or anxiety or mental health is waking up every day and choosing their medication instead of, not choosing to take their medication and over time they realize that life isn't so hard and that there aren't these like miraculous moments that we looked for that. I think that they happen for some people, but if they don't happen, it doesn't mean that you're not working hard enough. It doesn't mean that you're not good enough. It doesn't mean that you're not trying.
0: Right. It's kind of like, it's almost like anything. And and like you mentioned mm. the consumer, culture where you see mm-hmm. the quick fixes, whether it's for your body or diet or a job or whatever it is, or the the road to wealth or out of poverty, like everybody's sure. got, there's enough people that do have those flash moments, but it's not, it's not fair for the rest of us because that's mm-hmm. generally not how things work. Also, it's really, right. it's yeah. really interesting that your therapist, I don't know if therapists are just good like this, but they saw past the uh, anorexia and uh, bulimia. It was like um, they saw you, they saw past that to who you were, which is what kind of helped the process along.
2: Yeah. Which and I have priceless. to say that I had many, 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 many therapists who refused to do that and didn't know how to do that and didn't have the skill to do that. Because I think honestly, they're just like with any other job, we can take the easy road out as therapists. And the easy road out is. Is um, sitting behind a clipboard, just listening to someone talk and maybe doing an intervention, which doesn't take anything from us. But I find that the most demanding therapy that I ever do, but also the most effective therapy is when I'm human with someone. And when I see their humanness and I love them in that, and when we just show up together as people, instead of a hierarchy of the knower and the not knower, the sick and the healer, the the credentialed and the layperson, that there's just this kind of meeting in a place where none of those distinctions matter. and and that reminds us that none of the labels matter anyway. Like the labels are just the words that we have constructed. To identify what a cluster of symptoms is, but it doesn't explain why we're suffering and it doesn't explain what the person went through. That's the whole problem with epiphenality and multi-finality is that we can have all of these conditions and all of these life experiences, and we still don't really understand how some people who go through trauma are fine and some people don't. You can take a good guess, but it's more complex than saying this is the, you know, this is the missing puzzle piece. But I think that there is something incredibly healing about showing up with someone and letting them see you and seeing them. And I think that's ultimately what we all want anyway, especially when we're hurting the most, to not be the person who's sick, to not be the person with the diagnosis or the label, but to be the person who who just has a lot of pain and needs to not feel alone in it.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the science can only take you so far. And then the art side of it, it's almost like it's an art mm-hmm. You should consider. Do you consider yourself an artist um, a little bit?
2: <laughs> the artist formerly known as Hillary. Yes, I think. Um, I think of the of psychotherapy in an art and science. Yes. It's um, because feelings. We have enough information about feelings to understand how they show up in the body and what they do in your brain, but at the same time, like no one can feel them for me except me, and I can't reduce my feelings down to just explaining which um, neuroanatomical correlates are activated. I think there's something more beautiful and magical. It's like you can look at the symmetry of a person's face and you could copy that onto a piece of paper, but would that move you in the same way as if you expressed something? Mm. So this psychotherapy is this beautiful intersection of where faith and art and science and healing mystery and existentialism and Meet. It's just it's just being human with somebody else and trying to do that in a skillful way that helps them remember what that's like before they forgot. Hmm. My
0: um, yeah. my wife she, and I have her permission. We I was hoping to have her on here, but we just couldn't work it out. Oh, she, nice! In high school, she yeah. had an eating disorder, and mm. she she was a she ran track and for a while had the record mm. for the hurdles. Which is pretty cool. Wow! But she ran track, yeah. and in the off season, the coach she the coach made her and everybody run cross country so that they didn't gain mm-hmm. any weight. And there was a yeah. lot of um, verbal digs. I mean, I guess you could call, probably call it abuse, where mm-hmm. pro- people mostly wouldn't have seen it as such, but ultimately, it was about you're you're too big to run track effectively, yeah. and so she looks back now at the pictures and she just, she can't believe it. And she didn't see it at the time, how thin she was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until one of her friends and an assistant coach just, it was almost like a moment where they just confronted her and said, look, this is, this is not going well for you. You are not Mm -hmm. healthy. And I don't know exactly Mm -hmm. how that conversation went, but I wonder how, how do we approach these things where you see potential, health risk, whether it's too thin or maybe an uh an overweight issue, how does that what are good ways to approach that without adding mm-hmm. more shame and like and creating mm-hmm. adding more to that cycle?
2: Yeah. Well I'll use my own lived experience as an example and say that what we really need is relationships with people who see if there's hurt underneath any of those things, that maybe the shape of our body is symptomatic at times of us carrying pain about not feeling good enough or not feeling like we matter or not being perfect or being broken and and what we probably really need is people who get close enough to see us and can say to us i see how hard you're working at covering up your pain but i want you to know that i love you no matter what mm-hmm. And what we know about things like interventions is that they're not very effective. But if someone says, I really love you and I'd love to get to know what's going on for you and what life is like, and can you tell me about where you're hurting in your life right now and how I could support you with that? And wow, it seems like, you know, you're working your body really, really hard. And I'm wondering if you know how to rest Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what that would do for you. And are you feeling like being a part of that community, the athletic community is making you small and it's costing you psychologically? Well, Well, you don't have to be a part of it if you don't want to. And really the things that make the most difference in people's lives are when we express our love and concern for them, for who they are. Again, not for the symptoms, but we see them for who they are. I love you and I'm never going to stop loving you and you matter to me. And because I love you, I'm concerned because, you know, there's some things about the way that you're showing up in the world that make me wonder if this is sustainable for you but not you're too thin or you t- you're too big because I think weight and body shape and size is m- and how we attribute meaning to those things is much more complex than just saying too small or too big.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Scott, how you yeah. doing, buddy? Hey, Scott, I love you, buddy. How you doing?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Are you making up for something or um- – for something you said previously, or, or is that just kind of oh, shadow sure. of the blue? I'm, not sure about wound, anything.
0: I'm sure I've wounded you, Scott. Yes. <laughs> I just can't think of any time, so you'll have to talk to me about that.
2: That's right. You can have a debrief later. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. When we're in person, we just can check. see each other's eyeballs. How about that?
2: That's right. You can read each other's nonverbal cues yeah. and assess how the connection is. Yeah.
0: Oh, we have a lot of those, I'm sure.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good to uh, be able to look past. Yeah what's what's going on? Uh, what am I trying to say? Look, look, instead of just looking at the symptoms, mm-hmm. um, you you you're looking for the the root cause, and you know something that in the medical industry. Um, just the phys- physical medicine, uh, a lot of times they just treat the symptoms
2: mm-hmm.
1: instead of... Um, and, uh, and kind of ignore the root cause. For whatever reason, it could be because there's nothing they can do about it. But but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, treating the whole, the whole person.
2: The whole person. Yeah, it's true.
0: It sounded like you said... There's a lot of therapists that, um, that don't do the whole person thing where, mm. where they will, or do they jump to the medication too quickly? Do you think?
2: I think therapists, unless they're trained as psychiatrists, generally try to support people to either work in conjunction with medication or, um, to try to work with people who, um, who aren't ready to take medication yet. Um, but I think it's easy to jump to just trying to give people strategies to manage um, unhelpful thoughts, right? That can be a place that we jump to as therapists and so you're having anxious thoughts. Okay, let's give you other thoughts to think. Well, we also have to look at where those thoughts are coming from and, and the other parts of being human, which include feeling and relationship and spirituality and all sorts of things. We're not just thoughts. We exist in a body, in relationship, in space and time. And so we need more than just thoughts to change. So I think that can be one of the ways that we jump to quick fixes, or we it's really normal as therapists um, for your inability to go a certain place to show up in how you work with your clients. And so therapists who have trouble feeling shame are gonna have a really hard time talking about shame with their clients because Mm -hmm. you can't go somewhere with someone that you don't you can't go on your own. So it seems that the more work that I do on myself, the more therapy I've had, the more um, self-reflection and personal growth that I do, the easier it is for me to go anywhere my clients want to go because there aren't these places that I've decided for myself that I just don't, I don't talk about that or I can't go there. It's too scary for me. And when I've stared my ugliness in the face, when I've stared in the face death, um, even the desire to die, and that's not something that you know that is scary for me anymore i mean it's not healthy but i don't mm-hmm. i'm not afraid to talk about those things and so it's easier for me to say to a client i I'm, I'm worried about you because it sounds like you're sounding suicidal and i i'm not going to pretend that i don't hear that so let's talk about if you're wanting to kill yourself because that needs to be something that's addressed instead of being so scared to ask that i don't mm-hmm. so it seems that we to see the whole person, we also need to accept as therapists that we are also a whole person ourselves and that we, we need some attention to that. My, my motto, whenever I'm teaching students is you can't ask clients to do something you wouldn't do, including look at yourself or work on yourself. So, so that's, I take that seriously and I find that people, um, really respond to that.
0: Awesome. Do you have a couple more minutes? How are yeah. you in time?
2: Totally. Got a
0: couple more minutes. Yeah. Okay. So, say you have a person that's maybe they don't they don't like the way their body looks. They're mm. they they want to lose weight. They want to get healthier, and they they don't love their body the way they should. And so they're they're in like this cycle. How? What are are there like mantras or something that people can mm. can use to take baby steps towards loving where they're at now, but also make yeah. progress to to a a fuller, more, I guess, a a healthier life?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's um, having, being healthy and liking yourself are sometimes connected, but not always, that those could be different experiences where someone could be really healthy, but they could feel a ton of shame because they don't feel like they're thin enough, but actually their body is, you know, they're really fit and maybe their mind isn't healthy and their self-perception isn't healthy. So we want to be careful about um, confusing liking our body with wanting to to get healthy because I think sometimes you can be healthy but still not like your body. Mm -hmm. So we need to be healthy as as whole people. Um, What I would say, though, is that we tend to have this over-preoccupation with the things that we don't like about ourselves, and it makes it really hard to feel good in your own skin. So one of the things that I encourage people to do is simply just changing your focus by moving to the things that you do appreciate about your body. So a common thing for women who've had babies is, you know, I hate my stretch marks. And then we say, well, we're not going to pretend that those aren't there, but let's say that those are your bad, that's your badge of honor. That's mm-hmm. the proof that you've done the motherhood journey thing. And that's not something you have to ever have to feel shame about. And in fact, you can, you know that you are part of a special club of women who've had their entire kind of worlds turned upside down and you've got proof on your skin to show that so and that you survived that. So it doesn't mean that we ignore the things that we don't like, but maybe we tell a different story about them or um, it's, it's okay to focus on the fact that your legs work, that they carry you places and just mm-hmm. to feel gratitude about the fact that you, because you have legs and because they're working can move through space and time and see the world and run up to someone you love and jump up and down and climb stairs that that legs are more than just how they appear and so we can focus on the capacity we have as humans who are living in bodies to to move and experience life or to my body even though i might not look how it looks on the outside my body including my fingers they let me touch the people that i love it's through my body and the experience of being embodied, which is the word that we use in both philosophy and kind of feminist theory and psychology to talk about the experience of being a body and not just having an appearance, but being this body. And so, because because I have fingers, I can hold my husband's hand and I can hug my someone that I love. So my body allows me to love and be loved and connect and experience and see the world. Eyes are part of our body. And they let us see sunset. So I'm looking at the sunset in the photo behind you. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I took that. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, what an it was incredible in style. Oh, man. It was,
0: it was magic. That's not really touched up at all either. It's, it was unbelievable.
2: Wow. And you lived through that, right? Mm -hmm. That was you, you were there in your body and your body allowed you to experience that. So instead of focusing just on how we look, focusing on what it means to be fully human, which includes the experiences that we get through our body. And that can remind us that appearance is just, just one thing among many, many things about what it means to be us. And, and we can actually divert our, our conscious thought processes or thought life away from beating ourselves up about looking or not looking a certain way awesome yeah yeah I think that
1: I think the theme is that you're not lying to people you're Mm. you're telling you're not trying to deceive them or lie to them but
2: Mm. just
1: the shift of of perspective and that's
2: yeah yeah, and I don't I don't think it's ever actually very constructive to say to someone, You're not you know, you're not ugly. You think you're ugly, you're not ugly, you're in fact you're the most beautiful person in the world. Like I don't I don't Thank even you. know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing as I I don't think I've ever actually seen you. I just have this little icon that says your name. So even though I've never seen you, you're the most beautiful person in the world. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh man, you guys, you good. broke up a little bit. I need a clean version of what you just said. Go ahead, do that again.
2: Said, even though I've never seen you, you're the most beautiful person in the world.
0: <sighs> How's that feel? It feels good, right, Scott? You deserve it, buddy. It does. You know, no, but the
2: point—that's actually. That's <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say we shouldn't do. Right. But what we should say, what we should say is like instead of a hierarchy of you are the most beautiful or least beautiful, just say everybody's different and there's so much more to being a body than how it looks. Like how it looks is just one of the signatures that people can use to identify how I am different from you, Scott or Zach. But my looks don't define my sense of worth or value as a human. So Instead of focusing on being the most beautiful or the least beautiful, focusing on just being and ability and function and capacity and sensation and the fullness of feeling and all of those things that move our focus away from appearance into the things that we know are true. Because even if I said to you, you you know, to a client in my office, you're the most attractive person in the world. What happens in 40 years when they're older and they've got some battle wounds and maybe they go through chemo and they lose their hair? And am I really going to say objectively that they are the single-handedly most attractive person in the world? No. I think the hierarchy of who is attractive and who's not and that this false, like... Story about there being a level of value based on attractiveness, I think it's garbage. And so instead of participating, I want to quit the game and I want all of us to quit the game and just appreciate who we are and what we have and and leave it at that.
1: Okay. Oh, go ahead, Okay, Scott. one question. All right. Yeah, let's okay. hear it. On your, on your uh, website, hillarylmcbride.com, uh, yeah. one of the affiliates that you are affiliating yourself with is Ladies Man. Explain oh, yeah. yourself.
2: Yeah. Ladies Man is an organization that I started with a bunch of friends. Actually, Graham Watt, who works with World Vision, started it. We came alongside, and it was about turning the word Ladies Man on its head to redefine what masculinity means. Instead of masculinity being associated with the conquering of women and the oppression, the sexual oppression of women, changing masculinity to mean the promotion of the equality of women and undoing what masculinity has done to men and women through patriarchy over time. So Ladies Man is an organization that kind of got started and we've taken a little hiatus for now um, to have conversations around gender scripting and male behavior, particularly the perpetuation of the sexual oppression of women.
0: Mm. And that's a, that'd be a great, and that's a great long conversation too, but just the Mm. exploring and celebrating the, the differences in the genders and the, the spectrum within each gender. Um, but do you mean sex? Um,
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe that,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah <laughs> the whole other conversation.
0: Yeah. yeah like what is, yeah. what is, um, what is biological, what we're born with? And a lot mm-hmm. of the, that's, you're right. This is what I'm trying to say. The, the gender norms that are kind of cooked into our culture and kind of breaking Mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. down for, for what they are and and where, where previously they, and for most people, they're still tied to the sexes and kind of exploring that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be a great conversation. Next time. (laughs)
2: Next time. That's true. Yeah.
0: But man, you, I heard you on the Pastors and Glorious Pastors first and then even on a bunch of others and then of course the mm-hmm. Liturgists and you've humbled yourselves sure. to come on Bros Bibles and Beer oh. and we really, really <laughs> appreciate it.
2: <laughs> my pleasure. It's fun to have a conversation with you guys.
0: So, so HillaryLMcBride.com and then your Twitter handle?
2: HillaryLMcBride and Instagram at McBride. and there's two L's in my first name so sometimes people get get yeah. all mixed up with that.
0: And of course, the book, Mother's Daughters and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, wherever That's fine true. books are sold.
2: There you go. Yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> All right.
0: Really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you so it's much. it's on Amazon.
2: Have a wonderful evening. You too. Take care, you too.
1: Yeah, All right. you too. Thank you. Talk to you later.
2: Okay, bye. <laughs>